It's time for JT the Brick. I love my job. I love the opportunity that I can come in here and talk to the Raider Nation. Put some respect on JT the Brick's name. The plan was to get this roster with this new regime. They were not keeping this roster, my friend. Dave Ziegler and Josh McDaniels was not keeping the roster they inherited from Mayock and Gruden and before that. And there were going to be changes, and we told you. Are you with me on that? Excuses die. The record stands. JT the Brick. That's it. That's all we've been telling you all year if you've been listening. They have a plan. I'm not saying it's going to work. It's going to be 100%. But I'm behind the plan. The plan is to get it up to speed where it's really good for a long period of time. You are what your record is. Sound off like you got a pair. And now, JT, the man to miss the legend. Here's JT the Brick. Uh, JT, back with you. Al Bernstein will join us in a minute here. We'll break down the big fight as we continue. Hour number two on the flagship of the Silver and Black, Raider Nation Radio, 920 AM. I think some good momentum for the Raiders this week. Jimmy Garoppolo passed his physical. He's good to go. Uh, Josh Jacobs didn't come to terms on a long-term contract extension. He'll He'll have to now play on the franchise tag, which I assume he will. Saquon Barkley signed his adjusted franchise tag to join the Giants. Josh Jacobs could do the exact same thing if he wants to do it. If he's offered something like that with incentives, I'm not aware of him being offered that same similar situation as Saquon Barkley. And then we got the other news, which I think is pretty important. Marcus Peters comes in as the new cornerback for the Silver and Black, cornerback one. And there have been some good cornerbacks here over the last couple of years. Casey Hayward had a pretty good year with the Raiders. You know, I didn't think Rocky Sin lived up to the hype. We can't have a bunch of Jelly Ellis and Rocky Sins running around this team. They're good players. We need better players. And that's the whole issue I have. Illuminor is a good player. Is he a great player? If someone's better than Illuminor at right tackle or Brandon Parker, you got to go get him. If someone's better than Divine Diablo and he's available in the coming weeks, will they be able to go get him? Those are some of the topics we're talking about here. But Marcus Peters, you know, Marcus Peters might not be as good as he was his first three years in the league, but he's better than anybody the Raiders had. As we get to Crawford Spence, I think on paper, it has the ability to be one of the greatest matchups of all time in Vegas or anywhere. The Hall of Famer Al Bernstein will be on the call as always, and we welcome him to the show. Al, first off, we got to get to your show that you're going to be performing. What's new in your life? But man, you got another great fight that you're calling. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, looking forward to all the big uh, boxing action this weekend. I agree with you. This has the makings of a fantastic fight. Al, I want to ask you first off, let's get the negativity out of the way. Why it took so long? Because you know promoters as good as anybody. You know managers. And you know boxers. And when you sit here and we look at all the wasted time, similar to Mayweather-Pacquiao, and how long it took, what were some of the reasons why this fight couldn't be made earlier? Well, you know, they, I mean, I, it's always the usual ones, you know, promotion, promotional companies, uh, platforms, uh, and all the rest. But, well, you know, they came close last year to making it. They were, I think, on the five-yard line, uh, but they couldn't punch, the, punch it over the goal line. And then the, I think the two fighters really got involved uh, talking to each other, and they were able to make it happen. And luckily... This fight still happens within the window of these two fighters being at the top of their game. They both performed exceedingly well in their last matches against very good fighters. So we know that in their, even in their, their mid-30s, they are still uh, at the top of their game, and that's the part that's 
you know, most exciting. Um, and uh, we're happy to have it. Yeah, Al Bernstein is our guest. So let's talk about styles that make fights. I want to start with Spence and his ability to get in on the inside, to also have a lot of athletic moves. He's a fast fighter. I think he's got every punch that you could have, but what is the strength of Errol Spence coming into this fight from what you've seen in the past? Yeah, well put. He does have every offensive weapon in his arsenal. You know, he's got a great right hook, which not all lefties do. Good straight left hand, excellent uppercut, and he's one of the best body punchers in boxing. His mission in this fight is to jab his way in, using his head movement while he's doing it so he doesn't get countered by Crawford, get on the inside, work the body, and then soften him up so that as the rounds go on, he may be able to land a really nice right hook or straight left hand that could be a fight-changing weapon. And, uh, and, and ironically, you know, when I did the keys to victory for this fight, it took me all of about five minutes, which is weird because it's a fight with so many questions and so many uh, variables. And for Crawford, the keys I put down were simple. He's got to use his athletic ability and his movement to fight using angles. Counterpunch effectively. He knocks Sean Porter down with a counterpunch. He often lands, uh, scores his knockouts with counterpunches with the fighter coming in, uh, creating some of the momentum for the punch. And he has to control the range in this fight. Al Bernstein joins us, the Hall of Famer. You nailed that with Crawford's past knockouts. It always seems like someone's coming forward. And he's one yeah. of the beautiful counterpunchers that I've seen. Who do you think has the better? knockout punch if we went to a knockout which i'll get to what i think is going to happen a little bit later on but who do you think has the bigger knockout power with their best punch if they land it that's a very interesting question and that's one of those variables in this fight crawford coming up from 135 pounds is 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 kind of the smaller man i mean spence is really he's going to move right up to 154 after this even if the rematch clause should kick in. Let's say he wins and Crawford wants the rematch. The loser has the right to get it. If if uh, if Spence wins, he will want to do it at 154. Now, if he loses, he probably have to do it at 147. But he's he's physically a little bigger. But does that make him the more powerful puncher? That's a valid question. You know, Terrence Crawford has shown the ability, even in the welterweight division, as he's gone up, to be able to knock people out. I think that uh, neither man scores one-punch knockouts necessarily. They both will get their fighter out of there by hurting him with a punch, but then landing a bunch of other punches. I I think it's probably more even than some people would anticipate on that score. Hall of Famer Al Bernstein is our guest. You know, Al, you've been doing this a long time, and I, I know a little bit about this. I've been to so many of the fights you called. And your prep, what has changed with the evolution of how you prepare for a fight? Not only calling the fight, but the boxers' meetings the week leading up to it, knowing a little bit about training, and especially my important question, knowing the people behind the scenes, from the trainers to how they're doing cardio, what they're doing with their diets leading up to a fight like this. How have you evolved as an analyst? Well, you know, most of the information, you know, we get a whole, needless to say, a ream of, in, of informational uh, stuff, and then you try and augment that with phone calls to people. Uh, when you can, you you try and observe in training, uh, and you try and add in all the the human elements 
uh, and and that involves talking to people in the camps, talk talking to the trainers, and you try and get. I mean, my whole approach to this is I want uh, on my laptop. I want about fifteen really good uh, bullet points for each fighter that incorporate something different that I can add to the broadcast. My job on the broadcast is, of course, greatly to analyze what's happening, suggest what might happen, but then to add uh, informational data that maybe the play-by-play guy's not adding that will add to the people's enjoyment and knowledge of the fight. So I have to come up with those 15 bullet points. They could be all kinds of different things. They might be from the punch stats. They might be a comment a trainer made to me. Uh, they could be history of one of their fights. Whatever they are, I have to have them and be ready to use them during the broadcast. Hall of Famer Al Bernstein joins us. So, Al, when you do call a fight of this magnitude and you know what the implications are, the ramifications, I think of Triple G and Canelo. I knew we were going to see them more than once. I just watched the yeah. De La Hoya documentary the other night, and he had the lead against Trinidad. I still thought he won when he ran at the end of the fight, yeah, but we got a chance to see that fight once. You covered the four kings. When you look at this fight, I'm going to go with Spence in a split decision. I think both these guys have power. I don't think there'll be a knockout here, but I'm already thinking ahead to a trilogy or the second fight. That must be difficult because you're so focused on this particular fight, and hopefully it's a great one, but the business of boxing really needs multiple fights with these two fighters at the top of their game. Well, it might, but I, I have to be honest with you. I do not let that enter into my thinking at all. I, I uh, and I know this may sound, maybe some people will think I'm, I'm saying this and it's not really true. I, I see this fight like I see an eight rounder. Uh, I am, I want to, of course, Factors outside the ring are a little different for this fight because these men are champions and there are other things that come into play. But anything involving the business of the sport or possible rematches or anything of that ilk, I just completely put out of my mind. My mission is to call that fight, uh, make it interesting to people. I don't want to sit there, and we don't do it on our broadcast, and have a debate about the next fight. To me, that is now practice as a broadcaster that's why you're a hall of famer al first off let's i know you're performing whenever you get a chance to perform going into a fight i know how you treat your other craft as you sing and what you're able to do in front of a crowd coming up here at the tuscany casino on thursday i mean that's a lot to have i got a couple of gigs i got to do in the same week and i'm thinking about all of them but i'm not calling the biggest fight in the world and have to stand up and sing in front of many of your friends and a lot of people who know you around town how do you get rid of those jitters even though you get the big call coming up behind it yeah that's a really good question and you know i keep doing this and every once in a while i say why am i doing this to myself but i i love it i love doing music i love performing and as you know, we, I started this way back. The first one I did was before Hagler Leonard, uh, three nights before that fight. And then I did it many times with the Four Kings, and then at Mandalay Bay before a lot of the fights in the 2000s. It's it, it, the the thing about it is it's a great way to kind of kick off the fight weekend. People get to gather and they have fun with the music, uh, and also. Uh, we're going to do boxing trivia and give prizes away that uh, Showtime has provided. 
I love doing it. And so I work hard at preparing the show as early as I can so that it doesn't get in the way of the boxing preparation. And do we did rehearsal last week for the music show, and I pretty well had it nailed down. And now I'm going to run through it a little bit this week as, uh, as I get closer to Thursday. Um, but, yeah, it's a challenge. You have to compartmentalize. Uh, but I, the music is such fun to me. Uh, and I approach it that way. You know, I try not to approach it in the, you know, I'm, it's, that is an avocation for me, but it's one I take very seriously. I want to do it well, but I want to have fun with it. It's the Piazza Lounge at Tuscany Casino this Thursday, July 27th. Two shows, 8 and 9.30 p.m. plus the trivia. Hey, Al, a couple more real quick ones. When you put your head down at night and you're about to go to bed, what fight do you go back to? that leaves you in a great thought as you try to go to bed. What's that one fight that the fans ask you about the most? Uh, well, the, the, the one that I'm asked about the most is, is Hagler Hearns. Uh, I mean, that one, I, I was fortunate enough to do that in 1985. I was only in broadcasting for five years, and uh, I'd done the Hagler-Duran fight, and that was big, of course, but the Hagler Hearns became a, a monstrous fight. And the second one that I'm asked about the most, and this will not surprise you because you are a true boxing aficionado, the Corrales-Castillo fight, mm-hmm. their first fight, which was probably overall the best fight that I've announced. Uh, it was like Hagler-Hearns times three. Uh, and one of the great, probably maybe the best lightweight championship fight of all time. Absolutely it was. It's a fight that I showed my son. Son's on YouTube, and with Hagler Hearns, that's the other one I show the most because it's the true essence of a war and one of the greatest, most dramatic finishes in the history of boxing. Al, I wish I was in town for this. I have a family obligation. I can't wait to watch the fight, hear your call, talk to you again, come see the show sooner than later. And always appreciate having a great conversation with you on the radio. Thank you. JT, always fun to visit with you. You take care. See you soon. You got it. Al Bernstein. Al Bernstein is on this fight. Oh, my God. If you want to talk about being a sports broadcaster, which I am at some level with a couple of things I do, to do what he gets to do is the ultimate dream. Uh, To call a Super Bowl? No. Is it to call an NBA Finals? No. To, To be able to sit there ringside for a fight of the magnitude of the fights that he's called in every weight class and to do it at his level. And what I love so much about Al Bernstein and his wife and what they went through and their legacy here in this town. He's a big, big, big name in Vegas and around the country. But I always know when I'm going to get an Al Bernstein fight, it's going to be great because he doesn't get in the way of the broadcast. Al isn't, hey, this is about me, this is about me. You get a couple of these broadcasters now in boxing that they're trying to be louder than the next guy. Uh, The analysts want to get their words in. A lot of times Al Bernstein will just let the fight come to him. And then in between rounds, Al's able to quickly pivot and tell you what's going on and saying, hey, this is what needs to happen next. This is what's happened already. I think he is a master broadcaster. And look, there's rival networks, right? For years, Jim Lampley and HBO, Jim came on my show all the time. And there were times where Jim showed up and he was triggered about politics or something he wanted to talk about. But we always got back to boxing. And the same with Al. That's why we have Kevin Ioli on, Schmitty, James Smitty Smith. I always have boxing insiders on the show because, again, you have to watch this fight Saturday night. This fight is so monstrous. Spence Crawford 
and we're going to see it again. And he had a good answer to my question. What about the next fight? He don't want to talk about it. There's going to be another fight. Uh, there's going to be a rematch here, and we need to see it unless something bizarre happens and there's a quick knockout or something happens. I don't see that happening. I'm going to go with Errol Spence in a split decision. If this fight was on time three years ago, and we talk about Crawford moving up, I think I would have took Crawford uh, maybe two years ago. But seeing some of the workout videos of Errol Spence, I don't know how you can pick against him. And if Crawford wins, obviously I won't be shocked. And I think Crawford has the ability more so than Spence for the knockout and to get him out there. We've been telling you all about the summer of fun. And we got another opportunity for you to be qualified to win four tickets to an Aviators game and have a shot at winning the weekly grand prize trip. This week, it's a four-day trip to Orlando's Disney World, Orlando Universal Studio, plus a tour of the Kennedy Space Center, where you can just take the cash, $3,000. Take the trip or take the cash. Be the ninth caller at 702-365-9200 to qualify and get into this tremendous uh, contest. When we come back, the all-time team. I'll give you the fullbacks, and I'll give you the running backs. If you disagree with me on any level, oh, the music sounds beautiful. If you disagree with me or agree, do it via Twitter, at JTTheBread. And we'll get you right up, and we'll read the tweets, or we'll hear from you. Did another double today. Haven't stopped talking in the last four and a half hours. I need a break badly. And then we'll come back with the Raiders' all-time team, running backs and fullbacks. At the college level, you meditate. You're in a dark room before the game. You're hating your opponent. You're all dressed, waiting for the game to start. My first Raider experience was the Raiders being there in the locker room. Guys are gambling, playing cards. We, we never did that. Guys are reading the newspaper. We never did that. Guys are smoking cigarettes. They got plenty. There's a hundred things going on. Lights are never out. And then we come back in. I'm waiting for all the lights to go down and, and get ready. And then coach walks out and says, okay, guys, let's go. And I'm like to myself, wait a minute. Hey, wait. I got to get my motor running. Come on, motivate me, coach. They said, no, no, we don't do that here. JT, as we continue here on a busy, busy day on the flagship of the Silver and Black Raider Nation Radio, be at practice tomorrow, and I'll be back to do the show. And uh, we'll have a big update tomorrow on what's going on. Uh, it'll be interesting to see everybody back with the new additions. Marcus Peters, who we've been talking about most of the day, and what is left for Dave Ziegler as we continue and try to figure out how this team is going to look with hopefully a couple of more additions. A few more additions, if there's a linebacker addition or there's another player that comes in on defense, okay, great. Is there going to be another offensive lineman? If there is one, fantastic. But we'll be able to talk about all this coming up here. But first day of practice is a really big deal and a nice gift to get Marcus Peters coming in. So today we got the news of LeBron James' son who was under cardiac arrest and is in stable condition i was on for three hours today this morning that was a big topic i mean say what you will about anybody in life uh, you wish for their family to remain healthy and to have no issues like that so there's a lot of people thinking about lebron james and his wife today and their son Bronny, who is supposed to be a really good player a really good player and an nba player but that's not important now what's important now is that uh, this kid's in stable position and everything works out with him 
long-term, and then we'll talk about his ability to be a student-athlete and a basketball player down the road. But scary situation to wake up to today, and it really is the biggest story in sports. So when I get up early, early today to prep for this show, before the other one I did, and this LeBron James Sun news was really big, Saquon Barkley coming to terms with the Giants, unlike Josh Jacobs, and will this work for Josh Jacobs? I do not know. I don't get in front of Josh Jacobs' money. But I wanted to uh, sit here now and go over our all-time running backs and fullbacks. And without a doubt, this is the most difficult category because of the amount of honorable mentions that I have. I thought I was going to put the running backs and the fullbacks together. When I put out the tweet on the all-time Raider Nation radio team, couldn't do it, had to do it separately because there's just too many players. There's just too many players overall. So let me get to it now. And again, this is just to have fun here. But this was really, really tough because of the amount of players that could have been on the first team, all-time team, uh, compared to honorable mentions as we take a look at this going forward. So for running back, I have Marcus Allen at number one, and he played 145 games. When we look at the Raiders from 1982 to 92, 8,545 yards, 79 touchdowns. Fantastic player, Marcus, friend of the show, the all-time running back. Coming in next for me, I use Clem Daniels. Clem Daniels, one of the original great Raiders, third on the all-time list with 87 games, 1,133 attempts, over 5,000 yards, but 4.5 yards a carry and 30 touchdowns in his career. So Clem Daniels in the running back situation was my lock all along at number two. And at number three, I put Josh Jacobs. Josh Jacobs is fifth on the Raiders' rushing list. He's going to have another big year coming up here. In this year, he should get to number two. He should be able to surpass Mark Van Egan, Clem Daniels, and Napoleon Kaufman. So my top three running backs all time for the Raiders are Marcus Allen, Clem Daniels, and Josh Jacobs. I think a lot of people agree with that on that, but that's when we get to running back over fullback on this list. And then I get to honorable mention. And there's a lot of players that I had to include here that I could have included in another category or could have put them on a second team. I put them on honorable mention here because I could have included six running backs, but I thought I'd extend the honorable mention list. So first off, Clarence Davis, uh, what he was able to do, see a hands. We talked about him, 71 to 78, uh, 26 touchdowns, legendary plays, and was a big part of the Raiders their first Super Bowl, and the buildup and playing in all those big games. No doubt about that. Bo Jackson. Uh, Bo Jackson, no doubt, was going to make this list. He's one of the all-time Raider favorites, but he didn't play a long time for the Silver and Black. 87 to 90. He only played 38 games and had 2,782 yards, 16 touchdowns. So it'd be ridiculous to put Bo Jackson on the all-time team because he was more of a great flash player but the injuries took him down. But no, no doubt Bo Jackson was going to be there. Uh, Napoleon Kaufman, one of my favorite players. Uh, Napoleon's a great player. Fourth all-time on the Raiders' rushing list from 95 to 2000. He played in 91 games, 4,792 yards. Only 12 touchdowns, but 4.9 a carry. And he leads that category at that number. 4.9 yards was his average which was unbelievably successful. So I have him up high on the list. You know, I could have put Napoleon Kaufman right up there with Josh Jacobs at four, but we're sticking with three. 
at each position there. So love the fact there. And also Kenny King. Uh, Kenny King from 80 to 85. Uh, the multiple Super Bowls, what Kenny was able to do, 4.3 yards a carry. He was really good in the passing game and on the ground. So Kenny King, running backs, all time, I put him on that list. So again, Marcus Allen, Clem Daniels, Josh Jacobs, honorable mentions, Clarence Davis, Bo Jackson, Napoleon Kaufman, and Kenny King. And there's a lot of other guys that I could put in this world of Marshawn Lynch. You can go down the road and, and talk about other players there. Napoleon McCallum, who's a great friend of mine, a great player. Injuries took him out. Eric Dickerson only played a short period of time. He only had two touchdowns with the Raiders, which I was surprised by. I thought that'd be a little bit more than that. Uh, Roger Craig, the same thing in that situation. I love Randy Jordan, who had seven touchdowns for the team and was a really good player. Uh, Vance Mueller uh, was a guy that was in, you know, not an honorable mention, but someone worth bringing up here. Justin Fargus, who I mentioned, who had 10 touchdowns, 3,369 yards, 4.1 a carry. Wanted to get him on this list overall for the ability to play. And Tyrone Wheatley. Uh, Tyrone Wheatley, I had people talking about fullback, fullback along with halfback here. So Tyrone Wheatley, who had 32 touchdowns in 79 games. Uh, Tyrone Wheatley, no doubt about it, an honorable mention here at the running back position. You could have put him at fullback. He was a guy who could do both things really well. Now we get to the fullback position, which was brutally hard to get to. There were so many players that in that era were either a halfback or a fullback, but the Raiders had several guys who played like halfback running backs who were designated fullbacks. So I want to start off on the fullback list with Pete Banaszak, the all-time Raider great, uh, the Raider great with 47 touchdowns, 47 touchdowns for the Raiders in the postseason touchdown lead. Just a great player. Pete Banaszak, a legend from 66 to 78. Pete Banaszak, I have number one at the fullback position, or he could be number three. Because the next gentleman is Marv Hubbard. Marv Hubbard, the late Marv Hubbard, 1969 to 75, 22 touchdowns, 4,394 yards, 900. Look at this. Let me get the exact number here. 913 attempts in 90 games. He was a heart and soul player. Got a chance to meet him at signings and some early MC events of my career. Marv Hubbard, a top five, six, seven all-time back for the Raiders and arguably their greatest fullback of all time. And then Mark Van Egan. Want to put him in there as the second all-time fullback and a guy who I thought played like a running back but obviously categorized in the fullback category, 5,907 yards, 35 touchdowns. Mark Van Egan from 1974 to 1981, a two-time Super Bowl champion, a great player. Mark Van Egan, as we mentioned yesterday, one of the most important players in Raider history with his overall accomplishments, his resume, his trophy room, and everything he was able to do. Now the list of honorable mentions is massive. Alan Miller. A great fullback for the Silver and Black. A lot of the veterans and old-timers told me about him and said he had to be on the list. 61-63 to 63 in 1965. Eight touchdowns, 285 attempts, and was just a guy who opened up massive holes back in the day in the birth and the beginning of the Raiders. Put him in there and Google Alan Miller and take a look at his career. Marcel Reese, four-time Pro Bowler fan favorite. A longtime friend of the show here, a good man. Marcel Reese was a great fullback. 
because he could do it all. Marcel was outstanding in the passing game and could get big yards when necessary. Marcel Reese, no doubt about it, was going to be on this list from 2008 to 2016. That's a nice run for him. Uh, 844 yards, 92 games, 4.6 yards a carry for him. But I thought of him more in the passing game and as a fullback opening up holes. What a complete football player Marcel Reese was. Ewart Dixon, a lot of people go back to his impact as an old-time football player and a legend coming over from the Broncos and the impact that he had. Hell of a player. More of the veteran legends, gold jackets talked about him more so than any other player as I did my prep for this show. No doubt about it. Ewart Dixon from 1966 to 70, four-point yards a carry, 13 touchdowns, 66 games, and 731 attempts. Ewart Dixon, one of the toughest and most physical players ever to play for this team. We're going to put Steve Smith in the category here also for his hard-nosed football playing as a fullback, the ability to run it from 87 to 93, 103 games for the silver and black, 1,528 yards, a great human being, and a great Raider, once a Raider, always a Raider. Frank Hawkins, another guy who could play like a running back or a fullback. When you call on him, we'll give Frank a nod here and a big nod from 78 to 81, and uh, what? excuse me, from 81 to 87 with Frank Hawkins, 88 games, 15 touchdowns, hell of a player, and a two-time champ here. So Frank Hawkins makes our list. And then let me get to John Ritchie. Uh, John Ritchie was tough. The bloody nose, the face. John Ritchie played hard for the Raiders. Didn't score much, but he opened up holes, and he was a consummate professional and team player for the Silver and Black. John Ritchie had to get on my list as an honorable mention for the Raiders all-timers at fullback. So I know I got a lot of honorable mentions. This was tough. I think I overall have about 21 guys that I mentioned overall, and we're typically doing three starters in the reserves here. I went with the three starters and a whole bunch of honorable mentions. If I left anybody out that you think I should have included, Darren McFadden was a very good player for the Raiders, 25 touchdowns, 2008-14. to Played in 83 games for the Raiders. Uh, Definitely wanted to include him there on the list, but I can't put him over Clarence Davis, Bo Jackson, Napoleon Kaufman, and Kenny King. But I can put him on the list because of his overall yards. He almost got to 5,000 yards on this list, and that's a select group of even players over 4,000 yards. The tweets out there at JT the Brick. I hope you're having fun with this. And again, this one was a little bit difficult for me. So that is running backs and fullbacks. And I'd like to get your reaction to that on the way out. 702-365-9200 if there's anybody that you think should have moved up on the list. But the top all-time running backs and fullbacks from a rushing standard was Marcus Van Egan, Clem, Napoleon, Josh Jacobs, Marv Hubbard, Pete Banizak, Clarence Davis, all on this list. And also uh, Harvey Williams that I wanted to mention too. Hell of a player, 18 touchdowns, and he played at a very high level. That's what I got. And with everything else I had to do today, look at your watch. Coming up with this final group, I thank you for that. Because a lot of our listeners who are my friends helped me with this. Uh, A few gold jackets and a couple of legends who should be in the Hall of Fame. I am happy to move on from this category. I got a show to do tomorrow. I'll go to practice. We'll be out there at training camp, and then I'm going to a wedding back east. And we'll be back next week. And all we have left now 
It is wide receivers and the quarterback position. By knocking out running back and fullback, the only thing that's left. Wide receivers, and we'll do that when I return, and we'll save quarterbacks for last. As we wrap up this summer promotion, man, I know you're liking it. I'm liking it. A lot of other people respect it and know that it is a Raiders radio promotion as we build the all-time team. (laughs) Let's move on from running backs and fullbacks and get back to Raider talk and wrap it up as we continue on the flagship of the Silver and Black, brought to you by the DeCastaverde Law Group. My friends Alex and Orlando DeCastaverde, the legacy of their dad has everything to do with the legacy of this law group going forward. If you get into an accident, 702-222-9999. They'll take care of you. They'll do their best. They will get the job done for you because that's who they are, and they have an incredible team that I get a chance to see over at Tivoli Village. They listen to the show. They're a part of the show. That's the Castaverde Law Group as we continue on Raider Nation Radio. I've been through it a couple of times myself and I know what it's like to go back and forth about whether or not you feel appreciated. And obviously that's a big part of just that position. I'm praying everything works out because if we really want to have a shot at winning the Super Bowl and and having all the, you know, the elite aspirations that we do, um, we're going to need that guy. So, you know, I'm praying that we can still figure something out. But, um, you know, also understanding where Josh is coming from, but trying to coach him through it at the same time. I was Devontae on the Dan Patrick show. JT, back with you as we continue with my Raider Nation Radio all-time team. Uh, The list for the running backs and the fullbacks have been tweeted out at JT the Brick. Uh, The listeners and callers have been great on this topic. Really want to thank everybody who has participated along the way. A lot of people to mention. I think we have been mentioning them all. And hopefully you like the list as we uh, had the fullbacks that beat Banaszak, Marv Hubbard, and Mark Van Egan. It could have been Mark Van Egan, Pete Banaszak, Marv Hubbard, but I think those are the three. Honorable mentions, Marcel Reese, Tyrone Wheatley, Ewart Dixon, Frank Hawkins, Steve Smith, John Ritchie, Alan Miller. Again, if you think I left someone out, let me know. All-time team running backs, Marcus Allen, Clem Daniels, and Josh Jacobs. Josh Jacobs' numbers are enormous already. He'll continue to put up another year this year, which will probably make him all-time number two behind Marcus Allen when it comes to yards and some really significant stats. Honorable mentions were hard. Clarence Davis, Charlie Smith, Bo Jackson, Napoleon Kaufman, Kenny King, Darren McFadden, and Charlie Garner, who was well thought out by a lot of Raider fans, coaches, legends, just a lot of people that wanted to mention Charlie Garner there. And Justin Fargus and Harvey Williams and some of the other names that I didn't forget, we brought them up and talked about it and tried to get him in there. Randy Jordan, if that was one of the players you liked a lot, no doubt about it. There were some players that were fun to talk about, but they were not all-time great Raider legends. Napoleon McCollum, one of my favorite players. I would have loved to have had him on the list there, but I had to stop at some point, and he played hard and is considered a great Raider running back. And when it comes to this uh, list, obviously, Tyrone Wheatley, as someone says, he was a running back. Yeah, at times he played fullback. He was a running back. I didn't have room for him on the running back, so I slid him over. Again, uh, we're not going to fight on this list totally. Uh, not, it's not here to be perfect. That's why it's not part of the Raiders. It's our Raider Nation radio group that we're talking about here. All right, let me get out to this uh, Raider Dave 
is in Denver. Dave, how you doing? Thanks for waiting. Go ahead. Hey, I appreciate it, man. You know, there's just no better Raider content on, and I just really appreciate the, the ability, uh, just like rest of Raider Nation, to even be a part of it. You know, I think you nailed, and I know it's a lot of work, and it's been fantastic to listen to. I haven't called in a lot about it, but you have nailed this running back thing, and I know it was tough. You know, Marcus Allen, there is one thing about that guy that I have never seen before or since, and I think it aided to the longevity of his career. He slipped tackles like nobody before or since. And, you know, there's a few on the a few times I remember a running back actually taking over a game. And one of them was Kenny King against Denver. He took over a game. And you don't see running backs actually take over games like Bo Jackson did in Seattle. You don't see that much anymore. But what people don't really remember is, you know, when you have an iconic game like the Sea of Hands or goes to the post, you know, Clarence Davis and Mark Vanley, even to my knowledge, are the only running backs or carriers of the football for the Raiders that ever made a Sports Illustrated cover. And you ought to look at the Mark Van Egan Sports Illustrated cover for Ghost of the Post game, that overtime game against the Colts. He's got his helmet being ripped off. There was no flag on that play. It epitomizes the toughness and the grit that Raider running backs always had, which brings me to this point that I'm so happy that Josh Jacobs is on your list. Man, this guy was the key to last season. He was the hero last season. And, man, I so look forward to him actually making it a third and short and easy on Garoppolo to have the whole playbook with him. This guy is the key to this season and the key to Raider Nation Radio is you. I really appreciate it. I have one question. What did the Gold Jackets tell you about Warren Wells? Uh, they love Warren Wells, especially Fred Bolitnikoff. Thanks for the call. I mean, uh, Freddie talks about Warren Wells all the time and the conversations I had with him. So we'll get to that coming up here with a couple of categories that we left. And, Dave, I'm happy to appreciate what we're trying to do here, we just wanted to fill some content. You know, I, I, today I did another double shift, and I'm doing some more with the Raiders this year, so I won't be able to do some radio before this radio show, which is probably a good thing. But uh, I had a lot of fun with this because we needed some content for the summer here. We didn't have a lot to talk about with the Raiders, and my vision was not to do a Raiders radio show at this channel. My vision is to do a sports talk show every day. I just happen to be on Raider Nation Radio. My priority is the Raiders. But I'm a sports talk host. I need content. I want to talk about you know, LeBron James' son. Bronny had a cardiac arrest situation yesterday. I talked about that for three hours earlier today. It's a big story. Other big storylines. But I know my job for a portion of the day or a portion of this show is to talk Raiders football. And I'll do it when I think it's relevant. But my priority is to talk sports. Because I just don't want to narrow cast to Raider fans. I want to be talking to football fans, fans from around the country, NBA fans. And when Bobby and I came up with this promotion, we said we can only do it once, so we can't do it again next summer. Maybe we'll come up with something a little bit different in regards to the history of the Raiders. But this was good because it got us to accomplish a goal. We had to dive deeper into the history of the Raiders, which is fun. We had to reach out to a lot of people who know a lot more than I do, which was fun. And then we had to come up with who we think is worthy of being considered one of the greatest Raiders of all time at every position, and I enjoyed that too. So all of that's been fun, but there's a lot of other sports going around. Can you believe Jalen Brown of the Boston Celtics agreed to a five-year, $304 million extension? Bobby, jump on the mic for a second. You know, you're a huge Celtic fan. This is the franchise that had Bird. They didn't have Bird 100 years ago, and McHale and Kevin Garnett. 
You're telling me $304 million? That is lunacy to me. I think that Jalen Brown's a good player. He's not even the best player on the team. Jason Tatum is, and they got $300 million for him? You know, I got to tell you, as far as this goes, I think that's kind of lunacy myself. But after you let go of Marcus Smart, if you're going to, this is your window. If you're going to go for a title with Jason Tatum, you better have Jalen Brown in and you better just go whole hog because that's it. Because, I mean, they've pretty, they, 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 recently. They, they, recently. They, they pretty much completely destroyed their freaking um, salary yeah. cap for the next five years now. So, yeah, I mean, look, this is Kobe Bryant passed away recently. Kobe Bryant never thought of there'd be a contract ever of three hundred and four million. And the highest paid player in NBA history shouldn't be Jalen Brown. I don't care where the, the, the marketing is or where we are in regards to a time frame in this league. There's no way on God's green earth at any time Jalen Brown should be the highest paid player to ever play in the NBA. No, and he won't be. There'll, there'll be another contract next year that tops it. Well, yeah, you will. There will be another contract next year to offset it. But as of today, he's the highest paid player of all time. I remember when Derek Carr signed his extension and he was the highest paid player for like a week until Matthew Stafford got his extension too. Uh, speaking of an extension, you want to talk about a monster one today? Trayvon Diggs of the Cowboys. He signs a five-year, $97 million extension. Ninety-seven. His bonus is $21.25 million. He's a two-time Pro Bowl cornerback. Now, he wasn't much better than Marcus Peters at the same age. The Raiders didn't pay $97 million for Marcus Peters. Didn't give him $21.25 million, but... This guy's a lot younger than Marcus Peters, and he's starting off his career at a high level. Of that money, $97 million, 42.3 is fully guaranteed. That is a huge contract for a player. And I want another secret I want to take. Not secret. Who cares about secrets? I'm leaning towards picking the Cowboys as my NFC Super Bowl team. I'm pretty good at this every year. I pick the Super Bowl winners before the season starts. So I obviously picked the Super Bowl matchup. And I think that Philadelphia is going to take a little bit of a step back. They lost both their safeties. Their schedule in November is one of the toughest schedules I've ever seen in my life in November. And I think the Dallas Cowboys have made some adjustments here and are going to be on the verge of going to the Super Bowl. And the NFC, the best teams in the NFC are Philadelphia, Dallas. Derek Carr made a good choice with New Orleans. New Orleans should be able to win their division. And then the 49ers were Nick Bosa is holding out from camp. That's another big story today as Brock Purdy was cleared and ready to go. And Brock Purdy had a pretty serious elbow surgery, and he's good. He's got full clearance, just like Jimmy Garoppolo, who passed his physical, has full clearance. So the Niners reported for training camp earlier today, John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan revealed that Purdy, who had surgery to repair that uh, TUC ligament in his right elbow, he's ready to go. He's cleared and he will be fully participating there. Uh, but they got to figure out what they're going to do with Nick Bosa because Nick Bosa was the defensive player of the year, and he wants to get paid. And he's another one of those guys who is not paid. He's playing on a fifth-year contract, and I'm assuming they're going to get that deal done, and they need to get that deal done. And the fourth leading story at ESPN.com is Josh Jacobs does not report to camp, and the Raiders respect his stance. You heard Josh McDaniels talk about this a little bit earlier at the press conference. Q's got a big show. I just saw his rundown, so get ready for him. He's coming up next. I'll see Q tomorrow at the first day of Raiders training camp. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow from noon to 2. Harry Ruiz will be in for me on Thursday and Friday. And I want to thank everybody 
as we got through the summer and got to training camp. Uh, summer's not over yet. Still got a couple of trips and some things I'm going to do here before we really get ratcheted up here into Raider season. But now it's go time. It's go time for the silver and black. And I think they're pretty good. And I think they're underestimated. And I think they're getting disrespected. And I think it's the job of the Raider organization to win a lot of games this year and quiet down the background noise. And I know you agree with me on that. Q's coming up next. I'll see everybody as we turn that music up so I can hear it and get to Q. And he'll take it from here on the flagship of the Silver and Black. <laughs> 